Um, for those joining us for the first time, we as a church are going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, and as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we're just trying to see how Mark is unpacking who Jesus is and how Mark is trying to prove to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so today we are starting with chapter 2. And um, it's an amazing story of how um, Jesus heals this guy who literally falls out of the ceiling. Um, and so as we unpack that for us today, I just want to um, yeah, I just want to uh, start off by praying for us, and then we're going to dive in, and yeah, please bow with me again and pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that you are with us here. Our Father in heaven, you are not like us, and we want to acknowledge that, and as we come before you, as we come to worship you in word this morning, would you soften our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so, okay, so before I read the passage for us, I just want to remind us about something that Doug helped us with last week. Um, Doug, just, Doug helped us last week to, to see that some of these healing passages are actually, most of Mark's healing passages, um, they've got kind of a, a message behind the miracle. And so it's really important for us to wrestle with that. And the hard thing is to actually take that message and see how that applies to us today. Um, and that's really what I really want us to try and uh, get into. And so if, I'm going to start off with reading the passage for us, and then I'm going to start trying to unpack just how Mark is really trying to use this story, this miracle story, to actually help us today to um, apply the message that he's trying to show us here today with. And so um, please follow with me in your Bible, or if you've got a phone, or Whatever you use to read, um, please follow with me. I'm reading from Mark chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And when he was preaching the word to them, and he, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And, then, and when they could not get near to him because of the crowds, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their own hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning, they were questioning within themselves. And with, oh, sorry about that. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So I just want to give us a bit of context about how we got to this um, specific passage here, um, how we actually got to the story. And so in chapter 1, Jesus' ministry has, has begun, 
And it really starts to take off after a couple of miraculous things. I mean, he cast out a demon. There's one time where he's just having a whole healing session with people coming to his house, and he's just touching them and healing them. And so Jesus' popularity starts to increase. And now here in the story, he's somehow begun to come back home. And somehow he's somehow back at home, and the crowd's just flocking to him. Like, he's this popular guy now. Everyone really wants to see how this guy is able to do all these amazing things. And this is where, um, the, this, is where this chapter starts. Among this crowd of people who have come here uh, is a group of four guys. These guys are carrying their paralyzed friend, and they're making way to, their way to Jesus. Now, um, when I, when I read that story, I get to be a little bit too familiar with what is happening here, but that is such a powerful image for us, and that's really what I want to unpack. Like, if you think about that, these four guys are carrying a paralyzed man on his bed. They bring, they're on their way to Jesus, and they're carrying this guy because they believe that something is about to happen. And so there's, four, there's three things, really, I want us to see about what this man um, there's three things I want to see about uh, this paralyzed guy. There's three main things that really I want to help us see with this. Um, the first thing is, when we look at this paralyzed guy, when we think about that image of a paralyzed man being carried to Jesus, I want to think about the paralyzed guy in particular, is that this guy is broken. He's literally and physically broken. Like, there is something about his body that doesn't work. He needs to be carried. And so, when we think about how that could have impacted this, this man's life, and we can assume that, you know, like um, from the story, we can assume that this guy's got two hands and two legs, but we can see that this, this guy's broken, and we can think of how did this affect him in this particular context. You know, society back then didn't care much for people who were, who were paralyzed. You know, it's not like this guy's being pushed in a wheelchair. There isn't inventions to try and actually aid and help people. This guy's on his bed and he's been carried to Jesus on his bed. And so that's the first thing. This guy is broken. And so with him being carried, I want us to see that the second thing, this, which is this guy has no capacity in and of himself to actually get to Jesus. He's helpless. By, his, by the very nature of his condition, this guy is helpless. And this was his life. Right? If he needs to be carried to Jesus, like... In what other ways, during the course of his life, did he need this kind of support? You know, this guy's really helpless, you know. Um, the kind of daily support a man like this needs is really, like, we, we can apply ourselves in that and just see that this guy is really helpless. And I just think about when last you saw someone in a condition like this, you know. And it's different today. Today we've got, like, rehabilitations, OTs are all developed. And in a time like that, this guy's really, really helped. It's the kind of, the dependence he had on other people is amazing. And, and a great example that I want us to think about is like, think about how most babies, most babies are pretty helpless, you know, like they're 100% dependent on people. But when you see a grown man who's that dependent in that context on other people, like it's really disturbing. You know, like think about it, like he's, it's really disturbing and it's quite painful, you know. Which leads me to the third thing that we see about this guy is that this guy was desperate. We see the desperation in his friends. Um, these friends were undeterred by an uncooperative crowd. You know, they're carrying their friend. The crowds, it's not like the crowds are moving out of their way. These guys are carrying their friends to Jesus, but they're desperate. And, they, and they're, not undeterred, they're undeterred by that. They couldn't get through the front door. So for them, 
their friend's brokenness, their friend's helplessness was reason enough for, for them to carry their friend and break a roof open. Yeah. And it's not like the paralyzed guy's laying there saying, oh, guys, please, you know, you don't have to do this for me. You know, it's like pe- people in Joburg like to do that. It happened last night. Don't tell my in-laws. But you offer to help someone. <laughs> you offer to help someone. And they're like, oh, guys, you know, it's okay. I don't need that kind of help. You know, and, and this guy's not doing that. He's not pretending like he doesn't want help. He's there. And he's like, hey, break this man's roof. Let's vandalize this place. You know? And this is, what, this is what desperate people do. Desperate people don't have time to be polite. He's not pretending. He's there with them saying, yeah, let's do this. And this is the impact that I want us to see with the paralysis that Mark wants, to see, wants us to see with the paralysis of this man. This man is broken, helpless, and desperate. And as he swings down and lays before Jesus with everyone around there expecting a miracle and his friends looking down, and his friends looking down, everyone is just waiting to see what's going to happen. Now, before I, want, before I move on, I really want to talk about the friends here. You know, when we read verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. Now, this group of guys, and I mentioned it earlier, this group of guys are carrying their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they've heard about Jesus, they've heard about him casting out demons, and they, they're seeing the brokenness, the helplessness, and the desperation that their friend is in, and they believe that Jesus can do something. They took his bed with him. They heard about Jesus. They saw that, no, there's something that this guy can do for our friend who's helpless and desperate here. And so this is the faith that Jesus sees in these guys. And as he sees the faith of these friends, where he sees this guy coming down from the roof, laying before his feet, Jesus moves towards him in forgiveness. Now, and this is one of the deeper meanings that I really want us to be careful of here. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, He's not implying that this man is paralyzed because of his sin. I think that's a temptation that we might fall into, but that's not what's happening here. The passage isn't saying that. Mark wants us to see that when Jesus looked at this broken, helpless, and desperate man, he decided to address something that was far worse than that. There is something far worse and being a paralyzed, broken, and desperate man. Worse than being paralyzed, worse than being broken, helpless, and desperate, is the sin condition that Jesus is offering a solution for. We've gone into detail of how this man must have suffered as a paralytic, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to do something far worse. And this is a fact that's true of all of us, and the Bible is clear on this. There's passages like Romans 3.23. They tell us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Proverbs 20, verse 9, if you read Proverbs 20, verse 9, it sarcastically asks, who can say, I've kept my heart pure. Who can say 
I am clean without sin. And so this is the point Mark wants us to put ourselves in the story. In a way, Mark is saying that we're all spiritually paralyzed because of sin. Mark is saying in the same way that paralysis has left this man broken, helpless, and desperate, sin has left us broken, helpless, and desperate. Now, how has sin done that? How has sin left us broken? Last year, I had to write a paper on the nature of violent crimes in South Africa, and one of the things I had to do was you had to read a report um, by the SAPS. Um, the, rep- the SAPS compiled an annual report every year about the kind of crimes that have been committed in our country. And this report has a whole bunch of categories of heinous crimes, and I honestly believe that if anyone looks at that report, no one will walk away saying there's something, no one walk away saying that there's nothing wrong, there's nothing broken about our society. The kinds of crimes that take place in our country, and, and not only just crimes, I mean, I just think, let's think a little deeper here. The ramifications of our country's history, the levels of inequality, that, have cre- that are literally visible in every province across the country. You can't drive across South Africa without seeing the ramifications of our history. Something is literally broken in our society. The ideology of a rainbow nation hasn't fixed that. We've all felt the brokenness of sin at that level. And, but I want to bring this to a more personal level. All of us in some way have experienced the brokenness of sin. We've all been confronted with the fact that our lives haven't turned out exactly the way that we've wanted them to. And we all carry experiences of moments when we've either been sinned against, when we've sinned against someone else, or when we sinned against ourselves. I remember a couple of years ago when I was, I was in a really dark place and I was really struggling with discontentment. You know, things in my life hadn't been working out the way I wanted them to. Um, I had hopes and plans, my own hopes and plans. And in my frustration and bitterness, I began to just spiral down. And eventually, I found myself in places that I never thought I would. I found myself doing things that I never thought I would be doing. Things that literally altered the course of my life. It's an, ex- like, it's an experience that I wouldn't want for anyone. And I'm sure some of us have had experiences like that, experiences you, you wish to never go through again. And when you ask yourself, why do these things happen to people? Outside of biblical truth, you're left with unclear answers. We've all in some way experienced the brokenness of sin. And so how does sin leave us helpless and desperate? And there's a couple of ways it does that. But biblically, I want to look at two passages real quickly. Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and verse 8. It tells us that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. There's many passages like this 
that help us to understand the kind of state that sin leaves us in. It leaves us spiritually dead. It leaves us spiritually paralyzed without any hope against the brokenness we've all suffered. And without any intervention, sin leaves us paralyzed, broken, and helpless. I'm really going hard at this point here, but I just really, just bear with me for a little bit. Um, Listen to how Paul describes the state that sin leaves us in. Now, Paul is the guy who wrote half of the New Testament. He planted churches across Europe, and he's probably one of the most influential people to ever live. And this guy says this about the state that sin leaves us in. For I, he says, I'm reading from Romans 7, I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. We all have the sin condition, sin living in me. And Paul says, wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? A body that is dead because of sin. And unless someone intervenes, we're all stuck managing symptoms of a bigger problem. Instead of embracing the healing power of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. This is the only way that that condition is healed. We all need forgiveness. Now I want to go back to the story so that we can grasp the depth of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And so um, when we read verse 1, we see that Jesus has come back, the crowds are gathered around him, and what does he do? He is preaching the gospel to them. Now, the crowds are all coming there because they've heard of the miracles. You know, Jesus has become this kind of uh, roadshow. Everyone around just wants a piece of him. They want to see the man who's able to do miracles. I mean, if, if Jesus had a nickname by then, it would be Jesus of Nazareth, rebuker of demons, healer of lepers. You know, they probably would have given him a nickname and everyone's just hyping him up. He's got this whole crowd around him. And so when the roof breaks down in the story and they see a man swing down, everyone begins to think, oh, okay, something is about to happen now. They've been listening to him preach, but everyone really just wants to see a miracle. But at that point, all Jesus offers is forgiveness. Now, I believe that this is another one of those meanings behind the miracles that Mark wants us to see. Mark wants us to see that something important about Jesus' ministry Jesus starts his ministry, and we read it in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, repent and believe the gospel. He says, the kingdom, he says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Later in the same chapter, he's running away from the crowd. He's saying, no, I'm not here for the crowds. I'm here to preach the good news. I'm here to preach the gospel. Jesus came to preach the good news. And so when this man swings down, Jesus gives him what's most important. Jesus gives him what he's preaching about. Jesus came to preach the good news of forgiveness. This is what matters most for Jesus. It's not the miracles. This is what he came to do. 
And so as we read ourselves in the story of the paralyzed man here, we need to recognize that we're spiritually paralyzed in our sin, and we must also recognize that Jesus is offering the gospel that forgives. This is the good news. More than seeing a miracle, the crowds needed forgiveness. They need the gospel. And this is what the gospel is about. It's the good news of forgiveness. Mark is clearly communicating that there's a, there's a deeper problem with all of us. Sin has left us broken and helpless, and we need the gospel. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the one who can heal. Jesus is the one who can heal us. He offers that forgiveness. Jesus does care about our physical needs. And there are times that he meets them. But sometimes Jesus uses our felt needs. You know, our struggles in marriage, the tensions and broken relationships among our friends and families. Jesus cares about all those things. And he wants to meet those things. But more importantly, Jesus sometimes uses those needs. He uses those broken situations to help us see our bigger need, our spiritual paralysis, so that we can see the good news that he's offering to us. Now, in this specific story, there are some people who are not happy about that. You, know, like, you can see there in uh, verse 6, the scribes are there and they're questioning in their hearts. Now, I, I want to get into the scribes here a little bit and, uh, <clears throat> and kind of explain why they're not happy about what's happening here. It's significant that the scribes, who were the religious leaders of the day, they also had their own ministries. They also had their own followings. You know? And so now Jesus' popularity is kind of upsetting the status quo a little bit. And so some of them are just coming around. They just kind of see, okay, what's happening here? You know, I, remember, I remember when I was a rugby player, um, we used to do things called video sessions. And part of our video sessions was we studied the opponents. You know, uh, we had a secret guy would go there to the Bulls, record a practice session, and then we study the videos and learn the moves, and we try to steal everything to make sure that we can win. <laughs> <laughs> I never beat the bulls, though, but it's okay. <laughs> but, but that's kind of what's happening here. That's the scribes, they've also heard about this guy who's got this new ministry, this ministry that has authority to cast demons out. And they're coming there. They just want to scout. They're like, okay, what's going on here? You know? These guys were the religious leaders of the day. They were responsible for the spiritual health of the Jewish nation. You know, they understood that the biggest problem in humanity was sin. And they knew, they understood its impact. And they knew what everybody else needed. And it was their responsibility to do that, to help the nation in that way. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, immediately that captures their imaginations. They've got an extensive understanding of the Old Testament. They know that only God can forgive sins. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, for them, light bulbs fly. Passages like Isaiah 43, 25 come to their mind. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. They know only God can forgive. And so they start to question in their hearts. And Jesus starts to perceive what they're thinking. And if you ever wondered if Jesus can read minds, the question is yes. 
So Jesus confronts these guys who recognize what's happening here. They recognize what Jesus is saying. And he asks them, which is easier? Man, I, I, like, I love that question. Which is easier? And he says to them, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, if you consider again who Jesus is asking this question to, this is the scribes. These guys had the Old Testament memorized. They understood the message of the Old Testament. They understood that one day God would bring a Messiah back who would end this sinful world, who would end this sinful age through a messianic figure. And this messianic figure had power, authority, and glory. They understood the message of the Old Testament. More than that, they expected its fulfillment. They expected that one day God is going to fulfill this. He's going to bring this Messiah and he's going to forgive all of our sins. And the big thing they understood about the forgiveness of sins, they understood that the forgiveness of sins came with a price. This was part of their job. Every day these guys were doing some kind of sacrifice. They understood the cost of sin. The only way to forgive sin is if, some, is if someone dies. These guys understood that. And so when Jesus asks the question, which is easier? He's confronting their understanding of the Messiah. He's forcing them to think back about the Old Testament. He's forcing them to literally rummage through their mind and say, okay, which is easier? Now for us, the question seems pretty simple. And if I ask you, which is easier? to say your sins are forgiven or to, say, to tell a man, get up and walk. And we, we, we live in the skeptical age. Everyone wants proof. You know, if I said your sins are forgiven, there's no definitive way to test that. Like, oh, no, how do you, how do you tell someone's forgiven? You know, I mean, that's why there's a whole lot of other wild churches out there. People run to those kinds of churches because it seems like there's proof. Now, we live in this skeptical age. We're not in the, we need proof. If someone is physically healed, then you all know that this guy is who he says he is. But for the scribes, it wasn't like that. The moment they heard that question, they would have rummaged in their mind, seeking, that, like seeking everything they understand about the Old Testament. They would have known. To forgive sins, it costs. There's a cost to forgiveness of sins. They would have known. Which is easier, it is impossible to for, for a man to forgive sins. In their minds, they would have known it's probably easier to say to this man, get up and walk. But before the scribes actually give a sufficient answer, and before our own skepticism leads us away from, leads us away from the truth, Jesus gives us the answer that gives us all the proof we need. Mark really wants to help us here. We're paralyzed in our sin. And unless someone comes and intervenes, because that's what we need, we need an intervention. We need forgiveness. And so Jesus gives us all the proof we need that we may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus moves towards this guy. 
Jesus here is identifying himself as the Son of Man. This is the favorite way Jesus likes to call himself. He likes to call himself the Son of Man. And it's really significant. In the Old Testament, you can read Daniel chapter 7. You can read this prophecy there of a coming Messiah. That coming Messiah is given authority. He's given power. He's given glory. And Jesus says, I am that guy. Jesus says, I am that guy and I'm going to prove it. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately. Mark wants us to see that there's no time. It's immediately. Jesus is able to do this. We paralyze nothing. We need forgiveness. And Jesus is offering us the forgiveness that is able to heal us in this way. He becomes sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus is able to forgive our sins. He is the Messiah. This is a message for all of us. For those of us who've put their trust in Jesus, this message is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to celebrate. We're forgiven. It doesn't matter how far you've spiraled down. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. The mark of a believer is repentance and faith. We can celebrate. We can be like these guys here, amazed, glorifying God. We're forgiven. There's hope in Jesus Christ, and we can continue to repent and believe that this forgiveness has been achieved for us through Jesus Christ. And this is the same message for those who are still wrestling with the forgiveness that Jesus is offering. If there's some of us who are still asking, how can Jesus forgive? This is the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus came to preach. I am here to forgive. I'm the guy who has the authority. I'm that guy who's been prophesied. And as long as it's today, there's always time to repent. There's always time to turn away and believe the gospel. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus is the Son of God who is able to forgive. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, (coughs) hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. God, thank you that you are the one who has made this plan. That you, Lord Jesus, would come and be the forgiveness that we all need. I pray, God, 
incline our hearts to fix their eyes on you and see the forgiveness that is offered in you, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we want to glorify you and rejoice. There's no one else who can forgive sins and we want to rejoice that you are the one who has dealt with our biggest need. Thank you that there's hope for all the brokenness that we experience because of you. In Jesus' name.